Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for October 27th, 2023, a midday Friday show, special show for you. Welcome, as always, Tim Shiflett. Well, good barely afternoon, sir. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm actually in Central Time, so it's still truly morning for me, but definitely midday. I'm excited about the show. Uh, Ron Hetrick, who we had on the show a little over a year ago, um, agreed to come on, um, works more during the week, and so excited to talk to Ron Hetrick about labor statistics and in particular how immigration policy is playing into labor statistics, especially in Florida. He, he did an article that was picked up by Yahoo News, Miami Herald, other sources about how um, Florida in particular is suffering, but I bet it's a phenomenon we're going to see, you know, really across the nation because Ron uh, follows um, these labor statistics, you know, outside of his home base in Jacksonville all across the country. But until then, uh, it looks like after this week we're going to have to get a new topic. But um, the House, Speaker of the House race, finally came to at least a partial resolution. Um, on Monday... Or no, no, I take it back. Monday, you would think they'd work like the rest of us, but they actually worked on Tuesday. They had a conference committee, the Republicans. They talked to all the candidates. They had an election. Tom Emmer of Minnesota won the election, was ready to go to the floor, and it appears that he figures out he had nowhere near uh, the 217 votes. Um, one representative, Rick Allen, said that he needed to get right with Jesus because he has supports, um, at least to some extent, same-sex marriage. Before we even get into our current speaker, uh, Tim, what happened with Tom Emmer's candidacy, if you will? Well, you know, I, I, I hate to just out and say it, but I think Donald Trump is what happened. Donald Trump did not like him. Got, Trump was actually in court and came out during a break, sought out the press, and began to trash Tom Emmer. And uh, that basically sent a signal, I think, to the MAGA crowd that uh, we we don't want this guy. And I, and I think the MAGA crowd was the other thing. They wanted their guy. That, that, I think they were just blowing past these other candidates, trying to wear the other congressman down, which we'll get to in a moment, to get their own guy. But I, I think Emmer got in the way, and he was just too uh, much of an institutionalist uh, to suit them and would have probably conducted the office of speaker like, dare I say, a normal human being. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not what they, they were wanting. So, uh, you know, you know, they get, they just got a, uh, votes to play with David and a little crowd as we've seen all year 
can do a work a lot of mischief. So there we are. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Tom Emmer that that they he doesn't need to get right with Jesus. He needs to get right with Donald Trump um, <clears throat> within the Republican Party. Um, so we really at that point didn't know what would happen. Could this thing just continue on and on and on without resolution? And, um, you know, there was a, a gentleman, I guess, who had been running on these ballots, um, you know, since Scalise was actually, you know, still on one of the ballots. And he was finishing fifth and fourth. And uh, did, uh, did Mike Johnson actually finish second to Tom Emmer when they actually had the Tom Emmer ballot, if you will? Yeah, I believe he did. I believe he did. Yeah. So it's kind of like the guy that just, you know, is in the Olympics, Olympics after Olympics, and just keeps living up places and ends up being the next guy. And it was just kind of like, to me, in some ways, it's almost like he got lucky. They just wore down and got tired of this whole process, and he just happened to be on top of the mountain at the time they got tired of this whole arduous process. Did it seem that way to you? Yeah, um, but but again, I think all along there was a certain small crowd that was wanting to get their guy in there, uh, and uh, or at least somebody that Trump would like uh, very much. Um, that that they had thought earlier, you know, it was would be Jordan because Trump likes Jordan, okay, but. To a lot of the MAGA crowd, Jordan was too close to McCarthy and, you know, too much of the former leadership, and they wanted to blow that up and get somebody completely new, uh, along with the fact that, that he he really is one of them. And they, they, they got who they wanted, you know. I mean, uh, and don't you think they wore down the – what few moderates there are in the House and the institutionalists and people like that that wouldn't have voted for him otherwise if he had, say, been the very first candidate when this thing uh, started over three weeks ago. Don't don't you think they just wore all of them down? I, th- I think it, yeah, it was kind of this, in that, like, whereas Jim Jordan, people know him, he's a lightning rod, he's more in your face. That was a problem mm-hmm. for some of those folks. But then this process being so, you know, just arduous was a problem. And so they kind of had to choose their problem. And Mike Johnson, you had this really super unknown figure, not even the most powerful congressman in his own state, and really no one knew much about him. Now, what we've come to learn is he's written and taken a lot of really extreme positions He's kind of like a, a like a Southern Baptist that would like to see the Southern Baptist Church run as the Mormon Church in some ways. I mean, it's very um, yeah. I don't know, there's just something very uh, you know back in time, um, a, a very subsect in these writings. But then there's this other guy. You see the picture of him. He's, he's just this nondescript looking fella. And then you saw um, Hakeem Jeffries' statements. You know, we'll wait and see and see how we can work with him and things like that. And so it's kind of a little more of a blank slate than Jordan. And so um, people are wanting to see. Now, of course, these writings are going to be something that 
how much does this get out there and begin to define him? Can he get out in front of these writings and no. show that he's more than that, or does he get defined by those past statements? Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I had heard heard of him uh, because of the January sixth stuff and what happened, uh, you know, immediately before and immediately after because he was right in the middle of that election denial stuff. Uh, the reason more people didn't notice him then is he's kind of a soft-spoken fella. He's not like you mentioned with Jordan in your face. He's he's also very likable by people in both parties there, just personally. And and some of the big mouse during all of that overshadowed him, but he was really one of the chief architects of that. He was he was helping them put together reasons to keep Donald Trump in office and to die Joe Biden the president. He was right in the middle of it. And so uh, we've got a for sure 100% election denier in as speaker. What will that mean, you know, if, uh, say, Trump were to barely lose and, say, Republicans uh, kept the House some way? Uh, well, that that might present a problem right there when it come time to certify the election. A lot of people have mentioned that. Uh, some of this other stuff that he's done, it's, I, I, I don't know, we, we seem to set the bar so low now uh, that, you, you know, I, I think you could probably get get away with a lot of it. And, uh, you know, people were trying to ask him questions. Reporters were the other day when he got selected. They were uh, he hauled down by the other Republicans in the room. He grinned and said, we're not discussing policy and this and that and the other. And I think he's going to uh, slip right on through. And it's going to be, besides, those things right now are going to be overshadowed a little bit by, well, Israel, uh, Ukraine, uh, and a little thing called the budget process <laughs> that's going to hit us in, you know, three weeks. So uh, those things that you mentioned, the writings, I I think that'll come up later. Now, Catherine, let's bring you on in here. And uh, we've already talked kind of about the crash and burn of Tom and Emmer and that process. But now we've got Mike Johnson, who just kind of came out of nowhere. What's your initial take on, uh, you know, who is Mike Johnson and where will he go from here? Well, he's a true believer, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's a, a believer in, uh, like, a Christian evangelical um, democracy, which is kind of a crazy a republic. He's very specific about uh, referring to the country as a republic. Um, he's, uh, you know, prior to running for office, he was a true believer and, you know, was a litigator for a whole bunch of ultra-conservative causes, including gay marriage and abortion. And uh, so he's he's a true believer and also a big, you know, as Tim was describing, election denier and Trump uh, supporter. So uh, 
you know, I'm always afraid of the true believers that are um, not just power hungry, but actually, you know, uh, there because they have these, you know, ultra conservative beliefs and that, you know, this is a Christian country and that um, the Constitution is a is basically a Christian document. So uh, it's, it should be, if all that, if he has any power to influence things in that way, you know, if things come up that that he can influence, then I think we're in trouble. If not, then we're, like, like Tim said, he seems like a nice guy. Uh, people like him, but uh, if he is given the opportunity to, to, lead on any of his his true true belief causes that I think that's a cause for concern. Yeah, well Catherine, I want to ask you another question. Hakeem Jeffries publicly seems to have taken a much different stance with Mike Johnson than he has Jim Jordan or he did with Jim Jordan. Could that be A because he kind of knew Jim Jordan wouldn't win and Mike Johnson would because he was actually kind of given those indications before the vote was held? Or is it something on a personal level that he knows as a person he can work better with Mike Johnson than he could have Jim Jordan? Or is he just, or is it was it just exhaustion and need to have a, le- a speaker? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the. Re- I don't. I don't know. I can't speak for um, for uh, Jeffries, but. I, I'm I'm sure that there was a lot of people that were just concerned about not having a speaker and if this if if Johnson could win even without democratic support then that was probably a good um a good solution. So, I, but I don't know. Yeah. I I mean he Jim, scares same me. Thing. Those those true believers really scare me. Yeah, well, we'll see if he's more like his writings or more like he's been in the last, say, 48 hours, because it seems to be he, he's trying to have a, a reinvention publicly. That may be for political good. That may be because he knows he's in a different position. Tim, um, same thing about how um, Hakeem Jeffries is handling his relationship thus far with Mike Johnson. Yeah, well, uh, he probably is uh, saying, you know, the door the door is open if you want to sit down because you know what we've got to do, and you know I'm going to give you every chance to prove to me that 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 you can do it. Catherine might be right there on the thing about exhaustion. You know, we talked about that with some of the Republicans, uh, 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 how they were worn down after all. He got, you know, all the GOP votes, and he's the first Republican since Boehner in, like, 12 years ago to do that. Uh, So a lot of people wore down and ready to move on. And, you know, Representative Johnson, or Speaker Johnson now, can look and see, okay, there's a Democratic Senate. i got to work with Chuck Schumer somehow. And there's a Democratic president at the end of this who is for certain going to veto anything uh, MAGA-related that I send down the pike. 
and he's proved that before. So, you know, he everybody's got to walk on their tippy toes here for just a bit until we see how this shakes out. And I think that's what Jeffrey's doing. And, and this is a perfect then time to put a pin in this and really move on from it for the week because we do have to have more time to see how things flesh themselves out with negotiations about real policy and things getting done. But we're so excited to welcome back into the kudzu vine our favorite labor economist, Mr. Ron Hetrick. Welcome back to the show, Ron. Well, thank you for having me again. Yes. Well, well Ron, uh, I've been following you since you came on, and you have so much insight about so many things, but just in the past few weeks – you wrote an article, uh, or you were quoted widely in an article that I think was picked up nationally. I know it was yes. in the Miami Herald, but it was also in Yahoo News and other places about um, how immigration policy is affecting um, employment numbers, probably not only in Florida, but you did spend a lot of time thinking about Florida being a big state and your home state. Um, can yeah. you just give us a synopsis of that? Yeah, when you kind of when we're looking at this demographic situation, you know, we could see this coming. This is what I've been speaking about when we wrote demographic drought. You know, we were, knew we were going to have a pretty top-heavy uh, economy, and when you kind of look at the jobs that we really need to fill, uh, what we're really trying to do here, I, you know, you start to look at three populations, right? There's the the native-born, the people who are here. Well, our birth rates have been below replacement level since the early 1970s. Then you have you know, legal immigrants, and then you have kind of undocumented workers, and every one of them kind of play a role. And the biggest problem that we've had, and this was the point that we're you know, making, was making in that article, is that in so many cases we haven't really upgraded our immigration policy since like the early 1970s. And that's when the boomers were coming into the labor market. So naturally they didn't you – know, they were kind of anti-immigration because there were so many of them competing for jobs. But the problem is that's kind of ingrained itself into politics, and the point of that article and the point of what I've been trying to say is it's a strategic resource, and we need to get companies involved. We need to make better decisions about how do you allocate a strategic resource versus just fighting it. Yes. Now, now this may not have been in the article, but, but it's just a thought I've had. Of course, you have places along the border anywhere from the – Tijuana, San Diego location mm-hmm. all the way, I guess, to McAllen and Brownsville location before you hit the Gulf. Um, all along there, and you have points where more people come to enter. And, and a lot of people want to come in. They want to come in legally. Um, right. Would there be a way where businesses and the government, and, and you may have to involve the Mexican government at this point, mm-hmm. too, could actually almost have employment centers to where we could say, hey, your skills match our needs here, not necessarily in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California, but other states. Is that something that anybody's talked about in the labor um, economic field? I feel like I'm the only one who's been talking about that. I mean, what you're saying is exactly, you know, I've been on nationwide television saying this very thing of rather than, you know, I don't want to make this too political, but rather than building a walls, what we should be building are kind of processing centers. It currently takes about two years to get a work visa, and it's very expensive. And so a lot of companies don't want to go down that process because of that length. 
And what we're saying is, you know, with modern technology, with everything we're doing now, you could really, it shouldn't take more than literally a couple of days. You know, you fingerprint somebody, you go back to the, their whatever, the government that they came from, whatever country, and you kind of, you know, clear them out. And then you can have companies literally sponsoring them, much like, you know, the migrant population for farms, which is uncapped. And, you know, it's a great way for us to eat, you know, when these people go around the country harvesting things. So, I think we just need to expand those capabilities into other industries. We know that we can do those kind of things if we really put our minds to it, but, you know, it just seems that neither political party wants to touch it. Um, in fact, we have uh, people from both parties on the record saying that they don't really want to touch it. So, you know, I think it's, it's just still a tricky time. Uh, you could do those things, yes. We just don't seem to have an appetite for it right now. Yeah, I actually listened to Will Hurd, who's a Republican representative that had the district that had the most border along the tech of the American border, for that matter, but in Texas. And he actually takes more of a middle of the road view. And I wonder him being a Republican, you put him in with a Democratic administration to kind of like look at this. And, you know, you can yeah. say like, okay, we're looking at this. You know, Republicans claim Democrats don't look at this. We actually have a Republican individual in here heading this up in a Democratic administration, put that together, and now we're actually looking at real solutions like the, the one you've got there with the job centers, if you will. Yeah, you well, know, there's um, something else. This is, I have an interesting point. Right, hold on. I just want to make this really quick. Sure. Earlier this year, the governors of Indiana and Utah, two very much not – you know, liberal states sent a letter to Congress. They co-signed it. And basically they were saying, look, since you all can't seem to get anywhere on this and you're kind of locked, why don't you let the governors decide how many immigrants they want? And the governor of Indiana was like, look, if we don't get them in here, our health care system is going to fail. So why don't you allow us to do that? And I think it was really a wake-up call to say, you know, fairly conservative states are saying, give us some control over this. So you know, we can take this off of your hands and put it onto ours. Yeah, and that does seem like a much more productive approach than some of the governors we've seen that are sending National Guard folks to the border <laughs> to kind of posture in a way. That's the opposite tact to actually have a problem solved. Well, um, I could continue to ask you questions, but I want to be fair to uh, Catherine and Tim with questions, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine and pass it to Tim. Hey, thanks for being on today. Um, we mm -hmm. appreciate you arranging to be on at a different time than we usually are. Um, I actually enjoy having this during the day myself. But um, I wanted to ask about, I'm kind of curious about the role of um, unions now. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously we don't have um, the kind of union participation that we had, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I feel like it's sort of bubbling up, and I'm wondering, as a labor economist, how that, what impact that has on employment and, and also on sort of on policy. Or am yeah. I wrong? Am I just imagining that it's bubbling up because we sort of hear about it more? I, I, I will say a couple of things. This is going to get a little complicated especially we'll, we'll get to it, how it fits with immigration in a second. But you have, first of all, you know, we've been talking about this demographic exodus. And so in the union's case, you're, you're literally trying to fund uh, retirement accounts and you're trying to fund these things that a lot of people are starting to retire and they're, tracking, they're taking from the system. So I think unions lately to, to kind of make sure that they can keep money coming in, 
you know, to fulfill the benefits that they promised have really been pushed up. So I agree with you that you are hearing a lot more of it now, but I really think it is, just like with a lot of other things, you know, we're, we're really struggling to fill, you know, manufacturing jobs and skilled trades jobs. And I think these are the fact that we're really struggling to fill them and we're having to, to rely on immigration so much, I think is causing a lot of these people to start to look forward and go, you know, my goodness, our funding is really going to be hurt if we don't start to, you know, unionize other places and get those fees. Uh, I think that when it kind of comes to immigration, this is where it gets a little complicated. You know, if I, if I were these unions, I think I would be quite passionate about, you know, especially the legalization or, or, or getting the visa process, you know, done quicker and getting these people in because these are people that could probably really use, um, you know, maybe the coverage of a union um, it would really need a representative because they do come in, you know, with very little voice at all. Uh, but you kind of see, historically speaking, they really, you know, unions did not like immigrants because they saw them as a threat, yeah. you know, to domestic workers. But that's the problem right there is they could be. They could be domestic workers. They could be here. Uh, they could be, uh, you know, citizens if we were to change the way we handle this process. But, you know, just like with everything else, we're going through a transition, and I think they're trying to figure this thing out too. Um, that's kind of where I see this whole issue. Yeah, I, I just think it's really interesting, and and as, I, I mean, I grew up in a in a union state. I grew up in Michigan, and unions mm-hmm. were, you know, everyone in my family—not my immediate family, but my 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 grandfather was a plumber. You know, all the the whole thing. So I've always been sort of unions strong and then it mm-hmm. just, you know the unions just completely sort of fizzled out with you know all the things that happened since then so it's just kind of interesting to see a resurgence and uh and then my other question is about the gig economy so we, yep. we keep hearing about how employment is really high and that you know these are the best employment number since whatever 1973 I think I saw recently but I feel like a lot of that is the gig economy and you know people are cobbling together employment you know some are you know uber drivers instacart shoppers you know whatever and so does that does that employment number really uh mean the same that it same thing that it has in the past I think absolutely, and I think the reason being is that, especially if you look at people, let's say if you're following the series of people who work part-time uh, because they, didn't, they couldn't find anything else, that's still sitting at historically, you know, insanely low levels, like some of the lowest of all time. You know, one of the things that I, every time I travel and I'm in the car with Uber uh, Lyft drivers and things, you know, I always ask me, like, what's your story and everything, and almost to a person, they're all like, this is what I want, you know, and I think, I think what you're seeing here. The gig is, is kind of self-empowering. So we're in an economy that's incredibly tight. So people you know, are kind of making choices about how they want to make money. And I think really what you're going to see more of, I truly believe this, is that kind of opt-in model going into so many other industries. I think healthcare is just so ripe for an opt-in model. You know, basically, you don't want to be attached to a hospital because you're afraid they're going to work you to death. So what you do is say, you know what, today I'm willing to pick up a shift. Uh, you know, I'm willing to do this here. And I, you're hearing more and more industries kind of talk about this kind of model, but they realize that so many people want the flexibility of it. And you kind of think about it. We just came through a couple of years of a lot of people working from home. Well, once you get used to doing your laundry anytime you want, 
then, you know, they tell you to come back in the office, and you kind of look at that, and you go, I really like the ability to, to be home at least some of the days of the week. So I think gig is just um, meeting people kind of where they are. It's a, you know, it's still an insanely tight market. There's still a lot of job openings, and I think people kind of look at it now as a, a an alternative to, you know, kind of working that 40-, 60-hour week and being locked down. They They feel like they have a little bit more control over their lives. Huh. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Thank you for that perspective. Sure. Okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Go ahead, Tim. Huh. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for being with us. Um, I want to ask you first about a, a, a question about a state way up north, and then, then we'll return to, to your home base of Florida. So I right. heard a story about North Dakota and their mm. labor issues on national public radio. You know, they're a very unique state, uh, generally just about right at the top of unemployment, uh, below 3%, just yeah. about always. Their problem is they got the jobs, they don't have the population. So Correct. Uh, the, the spokesman said that the state and its major industries are working actively in tandem recruiting immigrants to come right. there to work. I mean, they're literally going to the immigrants. For instance, they're yeah. going in Ukrainian immigrants, for instance. Yes. You know, there's a lot of them right now. They're bringing them there, setting them up, seeking them yeah. out. And I was just wondering why more states are not doing that. That's the <laughs> Right, right. I mean, you're saying it, and I and I'm traveling all over the country saying this. So, uh, in the past month and a half, I've been to Wyoming and I spoke to all the hospitals in Wyoming. I was up in South Dakota. I spoke to hospitals in South Dakota, and basically, what I'm telling them is, if you haven't done the immigration game, if you aren't good at it, which is what I was told in Wyoming, become good at it. You know, start to, you know, when they're talking about uh, placing refugees, get yourself involved in the conversations. You know, you think about some of these states they're probably in a better situation to have some level of affordable housing. Maybe even they could kind of put something up fairly quickly. You know, it's mm-hmm. a little bit more difficult in a state like Florida because you get these people in. Well, you know, I live in Jacksonville. Where are they going to live? You know, it's, housing prices have gotten so much more expensive. I think North Dakota is a state that can really, you know, kind of capitalize on that. But you hit it at the very beginning, and that is North Dakota is below 2%. I mean, we're talking crisis-level unemployment. And, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. I think some people aren't as desperate yet, but if you go around the country and, and talk to people in the healthcare industry, they're desperate. And I've talked to major hospitals who go overseas and try to grab entire classes of nurses or, you know, I mean, we have, what, 219,000 Filipino nurses in this country. I mean, we're draining the Philippines of their nurses. And so <laughs> it's not that we don't do it. I think people haven't realized just how critical this is to the equation. We immigrants, we got a 2.5 million in the past, I think, 15 months, which is 60% of our labor force growth. This is how we're addressing a lot of our critical needs right now. That was my original point. If this is it, then this is a strategic resource. So let's start having a grown-up discussion about this being a strategic resource, and that sounds like what North Dakota is doing. Mm-hmm. Now, back to your home state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida obviously needs their migrant labor force, obviously. Yes. Uh, 
but they, at the same time, which seems a contradiction in terms to me, they're enacting these very restrictive laws to crack down on the very people that they need. If this labor force is not available because of these laws, uh, what are they going to do? Isn't that a great question? So, And that's why I became a little bit more vocal about it is that, you know, we are not in a time anymore that we can do these kind of things. Like, like if you're going to, with all of the fervor that you're doing this, I would rather take that fervor and talk about how we can process people quicker or how we can, you know, there's different applications that the people can do to, to use these labor, uh, labor pools. And in the article that I was quoted, and they talked about the fact that, you know, the outcry was so bad that in the government of Florida's case, they were like, look, if you were approved prior, we, you don't have to reapply. Like, you can just have them because they realize there are farms and there are construction companies that are like, look, we will not be able to produce. You know, we, you will, we desperately need homes built in Florida with everybody moving here. And then now we're realizing that it was basically a lot of these undocumented workers that were building these homes. And, you know, I just feel like we're at a point where, it, you know, we still have people trying to appeal, I think, to that kind of boomer voting base that was so against, you know, this particular type of labor but we've got to start to educate that base to say it's not a threat. It's literally the reason why you eat today. It's literally why you have a home. And I think we just have to figure out ways of – if we this, I believe, what we did in the state of Florida, I believe, was purely a political you know, move. And I think it's just, it's just not understanding that the world's changed. You know, we've changed. And the future is going to be very, very different. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe when – People cry enough. You know, every time I speak and people say, what can I do? I say, get angry and then call your congresspeople, you know, because they need to know that you understand that the world's changed, even if they haven't, and eventually, hopefully, everybody picks up on it. Yeah. Um, the governor down there pushed these restrictive laws uh, to get them enacted. Uh, what, what does Governor DeSantis have to say about all of this now? Or is he saying I mean, anything? Not, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I – have been trying to speak to the people who have us here just to say, you know, I'd love to sit down with them. I'd love to talk to them about, about the issue. Um, uh-huh. Like I said, I think in, in so, so many cases, just from really just kind of ignorance of an issue, you know, there's, there's people still kind of, you know, I hear, I, when I travel, I still hear people go, you know, with all this unemployment, I'm like, you're talking historically low unemployment right now. Like, please don't say that anymore. Like that, this kind of thinking needs to go away. Like we are, we are in a very tight situation. And if you think that it's not, then you're going to do things. You're going to do policies that go against it. I mean, I think he's fully aware. Uh, our labor force participation rate in Florida is lower than the national average because we do have a lot of retirees down here. Well, retirees put demand on an economy. So somebody has to fulfill right. that demand. And usually it's, it's food that they need and it's healthcare that they need. Well, we are already in Florida, one out of every two health aides in the state of Florida is foreign-born. So if you don't get these people in here, you're talking about nursing homes that can't be staffed. You're talking about home health that can't be staffed. And I just feel like we're right for a, a person to come in and say, look, it's time to get past the rhetoric and, and let's do something here uh, to, to use this as a strategic resource. And I believe he is a very smart man. I just feel that um, – this this is a difficult position to be in when you're you know you're still dealing with a lot of people who think that immigrants take jobs and it's like that could not be farther from the truth. Yeah, 
Uh, one final question, then I'm going to send it back to David for some more questions. You you uh, may mention then of, of the service industry, but then we look at tourism, which is obviously yeah. pretty important in your state, and especially the construction industry, because with growth comes a lot of construction, and I'm yep. sure there's a lot of immigrant labor in construction are we looking at the possibility of maybe some some of the folks in these businesses having to close their doors because of the lack of uh, employees i think it's absolutely a very real uh, possibility if you think about it right now and right now in the u.s undocumented workers make up 13 percent of all of our construction workforce you know it's 1.4 million uh, you know, undocumented workers are working in construction. I believe that is a – I think that that's probably a little low. You know, we know that um, all immigrants, including legal, are one out of every four of our construction workers. I think in certain states that reality is probably 50 to 70 percent, and I think with certain companies as well it's probably way more than that. And there's – you know, like we were just talking, and you just said it, you're in a situation right now where if you want a service workforce, so if you want to feed your population or have them have hospitals, these people, especially in these, uh, with immigrants' case, they're typically not making you know, a lot of money. They need to have a situation where they could actually be housed or you're not going to you – know, even if you say, well, we're, we're willing to bring them in, well, they have to have a place where they can stay. So it kind of circles – it keeps going in this vicious circle, right, because you need construction – to make sure that you have enough housing available to keep the prices affordable, yet the very people that would be building that uh, are, you know, are very reliant on the immigrant workforce to do so. Wow. Well, with that, I'm going to send it back to David because I know he's got some more questions about this. David? Yes. Yeah, so well, real quickly, just a comment on what you're talking about healthcare workers and how much in certain places as immigrants. I, I, someone the other day was complaining about um, – how many Indian doctors there are in our, my area, and I responded to them, which would you prefer, an Indian doctor or no doctor? That That's question exactly answered right. itself rather quickly. Um, you know, it's, and people are going to have to realize that it could be this person that is not native-born or no one. That is so, dead on correct. That is So India is where we get the most of our foreign doctors. China is another. There are actually stories out there of Chinese doctors because it's become a little bit more difficult in the past several years. You know, we're not seeing as many people coming over from China as we were. There are cases of Chinese doctors literally entering through the Mexican border. And uh, I'm hearing stories of other, you know, countries doing the same thing, that, you know, if this is where they can cross, they're coming in. So I think these people – there's a lot of people have these pictures in their mind of – you know, all these people crossing this border, they're fentanyl dealers, and it's, that's absolutely a myth, another myth that absolutely has to stop. Uh, there's no greater percentage of them that are, you know, having drug encounters than we'd have in this, this country. But you have to understand there's people from all kinds of trades, all kinds of countries who also come in through this way. Another thing, you know, just because I have this uh, thing when I speak about dispelling myths, there's a lot of belief that everybody thinks, well, all these people – all these illegal immigrants come in through the border, and actually it's about 40% of them are here on work visas. They just overstay their visa. So they're basically like, look, I'm here. The employer still wants them, and they're like, we really don't crack down on that because, once again, if we did, you probably wouldn't be eating. So this is something that if the visa system got fixed, you could just address so many problems in one shot versus having to go through you know, this kind of 
uh, song and dance that we keep doing at the border every day. Yes. Hmm. Well, um, well, let, let me just uh, I, like once again, I, I I could ask you so many questions, and and before I even ask this, I want to tell people that you are one of the best follows on LinkedIn. Uh, we always talk Thank about you. social media and how it can be minefield. LinkedIn is a little higher brow a lot of times because it isn't so divisive and political. But you That's have right. to provide some of the best information. So I want to have you back on again, not as long as it took this time to share even more, you know, different information. But just for our listeners, tell, uh, tell them how they can, you know, read your work, see your work, view your work, because you do videos and you're everywhere. Yeah, I, I am. So I just came off of six straight uh, weeks of uh, keynoting. I keynote literally all kinds of uh, trade associations and to companies and to, you know, local governments, chambers of commerce, which I just did here uh, in my uh, locality of Jacksonville uh, last week. And also, so there is a, there's the article that I tell everybody, if you haven't read it, you absolutely have to read. It's called The Demographic Drought. If you Google it, it'll take you to the website. Um, it's a 60-page article of things that might scare you to death, but it's critical to know this information. We wrote the article as a warning. We weren't trying to scare people as much as kind of, you know, wake you up and make you understand where we're heading over the next 10 to 15 years. And as I always describe it, you know, I'm living in Florida. There's hurricanes. Well, when a hurricane's coming, you get these outer bands. So you get rained on and there's some wind, but you know the hurricane's coming. And that's the way you can see it with demographic drought. There's no – we don't sit there and we guess or we estimate or, you know, hey, this could happen. We absolutely know. We can do the math. We know how many people were born. We know how many people will retire. And the labor force starts to get incredibly imbalanced. In fact, here's a tremendous stat to lay on you. Uh, it's in the article. Right now we have an age dependency ratio of 46%, which means – 46% of the population depends on 54% to take care of them. By 2030, that will be 60%. So 60% of the population will be depending on 40% of them to take care of them. And we know this. Like, we don't – once again, wow. if there's any guess, we know that this is coming. There would have to be a tremendous increase in immigration to offset that. And the fear is, as we also talk about in that article – Mexican companies are reporting labor shortages. 65% of Mexican companies reported a labor shortage last year, including their construction firms and their manufacturing firms. So if Mexico ever shuts off that funnel, you're going to see people going from being anti-immigration to begging. So, you know, this is that, that was that article. I also wrote an article last year called Who's Going to Do the Work? Who is Going to Do the Work? So that was just about the fact of, we don't have anybody to basically do the dirty jobs. You know, Mike Rowe talks about there's no skilled trades. Um, you know, the unemployment rate for skilled tradespeople, like install and maintenance techs, is lower than IT. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, we're more desperate for that than we are for, you know, we always talked about, well, we have a shortage of IT work. No, not anymore. Now we need people to get their hands dirty, do the physical labor, or we're all going to be in for a world of hurt. And then, you can also see demographic drought, me presenting it early on YouTube. Uh, that's up to like 340,000 views. And um, follow me on LinkedIn. It's, if you go on LinkedIn, just, uh, you're looking for Ron L. Hetrick, and it's all, one, one, it's all kind of jammed together there. Uh, and you'll know you found me when you see all these posts about the economy. I just put one up on GDP uh, yesterday that's kind of caught a little bit of fire. So. Um, I definitely encourage people to follow me just because I kind of put my musings up there, but I do everything I can 
to be very balanced about it and just try to present an honest view of things versus something that's trying to, you know, influence something uh, or influence Chairman Power, influence something. A lot of people have agendas. My agenda is just so people understand this is how I see the market, and it's been pretty accurate so far. Yes. Well, I definitely mean this when I say this. Stay safe out there, Ron, because you live in a hurricane zone. You play <laughs> hockey as a Gen Xer, and your own oh. videos drinking some strange beers that they feed you. Uh, that's another way to know that it's you. So stay safe. Oh, yeah, yeah, you'll find the videos. Yeah, if you go on to YouTube and do uh, what's Beer with Lightcast now, there was a Beer with Envy, but the most recent one, that's absolutely the most disgusting thing I've ever drank in my entire life. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Ron, we thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to get a hold of you sometime earlier in 2024 to hear more about uh, the American jobs picture. You got it. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Take care. Yes. uh, You just feel kind of smarter uh, after talking to Ron. It just really informs you with some different things you didn't know um, and – and it comes up from a really apolitical perspective, which I think is good, to, to bring people together to find solutions. Um, so that was ex- that was really informative and interesting. we got just a little more time before we leave, and we have been getting story after story stacked up about congressional maps. Uh, there was a court case several weeks ago in Alabama that said they're going to have to redraw particularly the southern end of their state and add a Democratic African-American-leaning district uh, from the Mobile-Montgomery area. Um, And then North Carolina redrew their maps, and uh, it was kind of like the maps were thrown out for many of the same reasons, but the maps just got worse uh, for Democrats, (laughs) at least on political terms. And then we just got a ruling yesterday about Georgia, and it looks like on the congressional level, it's focused on the western side of Metro Atlanta in particular, which will affect probably seven you know, other districts. They may probably all 14 will have to be changed in some way. So we've got all of these states. Um, we'll just try to hit just little pieces. Um, Tim, what was your thought on, you know, really I guess we can start at Alabama when that, that came out. Well, I mean – I tell you, what the Alabama legislature did is what is called packing, uh, putting most black voters um, into um, just a couple of districts, leaving the others uh, heavily white. Uh, that's that's a good way to do it, and and, and you know they 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 drew them. They drew the districts, and the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, 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 no. And, and you know, we're, we're talking about Section 2 of the Voters Rights right, right Act. And, and then they, like you mentioned, they just redrew the districts and made them worse, and the Supreme Court had to then come in and throw them out again. So that's uh, that's that's where we're at there. That's the quick version. Yeah, and, and um, it looks like uh, that they are going to have to go by those judicially drawn maps, which right. you would think it sounds like the mayor of Montgomery is, is the leading contender to take over the seat and number that's held by Barry Moore. I think Barry Moore could run against Mike 
uh, Rogers, who kind of, you know, made some enemies in the Republican caucus through all of the speaker stuff. And so who knows? Well, let's move on to another state, North Carolina, real quickly. Catherine, um, that same thing there. They threw out the maps. The Republicans there got a hold of the maps, and they kind of circumvented the Democratic governor, so he has no real authority to say anything, to sign off on the maps. And so the maps, they pretty much packed the African-American voters in, in big ways to reduce it down to could be as little as three or four Democratic districts. Now, one thing tricky about North Carolina is you've got pockets of Democratic white voters in places like Asheville and some of your metro areas, your research triangle. But those voters, you can manipulate any way you want because of there's not an issue with the justice system and the Voting Rights Act. Um, is there going to be any recourse you see, or are we kind of stuck with these North Carolina maps? Well, I would think that if they if they're packing them too, that the Supreme Court or the uh, is going to come down on them too. I mean, what's good well, for Alabama? Well, I think that. For... Go ahead. But I think the overall African American population is lower statewide in, in North Carolina than it is in Alabama, and then the districts that remain that are Democratic are going to be held by African-Americans. So racially, it's going to be okay. It's just not going to reflect the political demographics of the state. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, they'll, probably so it, get away with, they'll probably get away with it. Yeah. And, and then the final one, I'm going to let both of y'all speak on this one since it is our home state, although we know the least about it. Um, they said that, that, that Georgia has to really change one district on the congressional level, about three or four somewhere in that neighborhood in the state house and the state senate, which percentage-wise, it means the state senate maps are probably the worst, I guess. Uh, Tim, give us your thoughts on those Georgia, um, the Georgia ruling that came yeah. down yesterday. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, it, it, again, we're talking Section 2 of the Voters of, of the Voting Rights Act, and uh, so that, you know, races are represented, all races and uh you uh you mentioned the state senate and uh, house maps uh, especially um in the metro atlanta and and macon areas and and the one congressional district but you know david this thing has a ripple effect when you change one you end up pretty yep. much having to tweak all of them a little bit and by the way this morning i heard that the governor's already called special session of the legislature for for uh december i i forgot the date uh Catherine might no more of I, november okay it, oh 29 it, it is november huh? yeah. okay november 29th okay. after thanksgiving december. real late yeah i guess okay. trying to and who knows they may go in with maps and and it may be a fast process it may take till christmas uh, Catherine, your thoughts on that Georgia ruling? Yeah, well, I haven't had a chance to read much about it, but um, I'm, gl- I'm glad these guys are getting called out for this stuff. It's it, it's nice to see that, you know, something's working to, you know, call out some of these um, redistricting uh, policies. So, unfortunately, it's kind of a nightmare for elections and planning, but you know, I think it's good. Yeah, it's going to be what I actually, and I think I sent y'all the link uh, today. Um, 
where they showed some of the problems on the congressional. It showed all three, but the congressional is much easier to understand since uh-huh. there's only 14 of them. And it showed that um, it's really that west side of Atlanta. It's And, and you got to think it affects a few districts. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the south end of her district, has a Cobb area that's very African-American, um, other people of color. The southern Paulding area is trending very quickly, the area in Hiram and south of there. And so that's another area which I think will be impacted. And then also the Fayette County area that still stays, and there's probably a few more, maybe the Newnan, the city of Newnan. Some of that's in Drew, Drew Ferguson's third district. Now, all of that mm. alone is not enough to make a district. So you're going to then have to manipulate some other districts. But what is interesting is the district that Democrats lost in redistricting was the um, north side of Atlanta, which is probably has more diversity than I think a lot of people realize, but still has more of those highly educated white voters that um, Lucy McBath actually represented those voters. The, the other district, seventh, was Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, and now Lucy McBath represents probably more of the land area of Carolyn Bordeaux's district. I don't know how much that area will even get involved, even though that was the area that flipped. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do and how they manipulate things and then add population. But what I do think is kind of sad is the justice ruling never really touched on Savannah and Augusta. And we know mm-hmm. that in the past, Savannah, Augusta, and really Athens all had a district that was uh, a Democratic-leaning district, had uh, a very high African-American population, if not majority, even though John Barrow um, you know, uh, represented it. Um, so therefore, um, that area is probably not going to get changed, even though you have all these voters in coastal Georgia – that are um, kind of you know locked into some Republican districts. For that matter, Rick Allen, who we spoke of um, earlier in the show, who obviously probably doesn't represent a lot of those pools' interests. So it's it's a shame that some of this area of West Georgia can't be matched up with Savannah or Augusta, but that just geographically is not possible. So as we learn where these things happen and, and more about them, we'll discuss more um, when it's known and then some of the politics and some of the races that come out of this. Thanks again to Ron Hetrick. And then next week we'll be on back at our regular time with one of our favorite guests who's been on the show since, you know, before 2010 in the early days, David Neer of Daily Coast is going to come on with us and be on our election 2023 preview show. But until then, in the Cozy Vine. Good, 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 good afternoon, night, guys. Good afternoon. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love justice.